Then came November of 2019. There was her first suicide attempt. She landed up first at Cornell, Manhattan, where she was physically stabilized. She had tried to swallow a bottle of Tylenol. She was alone in her bedroom. And of course, the attempt was unsuccessful and she woke up and she told my wife, that's what happened. And my wife comes to me and said, we've got a problem over here. Our daughter just made an attempt on her life. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. In this episode, we are going to speak to a father that lost his daughter to suicide. Mr. Gurari is going to be with us for a few episodes because we couldn't capture enough of his wisdom and his experience and what we want to share with the world in just one hour. So in this hour, we're going to hear about his amazing, lovely daughter that passed away this past December, Yocheved Gurari. Mr. Gurari will share with us the journey of the last 20-something years with Yocheved, what the last few years looked like. And in the next few episodes, we're going to share more tips and insights that he can gift the world after his journey with a daughter that struggled with anorexia, with eating disorders, with depression, some insights or comforting words that he can give the world and give other parents that are walking through this very difficult road with their children. This episode includes a lot of conversations about suicide. If you have sensitivity to this topic, you might not want to listen to this episode. Just be aware 
that there will be conversation on this topic. I can't thank Mr. Guari enough for showing up the way he shows up only two and a half months after her passing with such authenticity and kindness to the world and sharing his journey, sharing Yocheved's memories with us. It's humbling and it strikes me with awe. Every time I read his post, when I speak to him, I am grateful for the time he gave us. I hope this episode gives you some clarity and comfort. A huge shout out to this new podcast that I fell in love with, Happy Brain by Heather Parody. Every week she drops an episode about quick little tips and tricks and hacks on how to create a happier brain. It's not heavy. It's a little bit humorous. You know, Heather's very funny. I love it. It's refreshing. It's not this intense, heavy conversation that mental health can be. It's short snippets on how to ignite a happy brain, hack our brain to create a happy brain. If you want something short and sweet once a week, it's about 7 to 15 minutes. Really cute tips and interesting tips and things that I'm like, wow, I'm going to try that. So if you're here because you're into mental health, you will want to check out this podcast. Go to all the platforms where you listen to your podcast. Type in Happy Brain with Heather Parody and just start following. I guarantee that you will not regret this. I'm just going to give my audience a little bit of a background. You are an Orthodox Jewish father. Did you grow up Orthodox? Yes, I did. Chabad family. A Chabad family. Where did you grow up? In South Africa, Johannesburg, South Africa. I was born in Cape Town, grew up in Johannesburg, come from a long line of Chabad uh, lineage, Mm -hmm. both on my side and on my wife's side. Oh, okay. And when did you move to America? I moved to America after high school, about a year after high school, to come study in Yeshiva in Morriscan, New Jersey. This is in the uh, early 80s. And uh, except for a brief time when I went back to South Africa for about a year and a half, for the most part, I've been living in America ever since. We're talking about about 30 or 35 years in Brooklyn, in New Jersey, in New Haven for Yeshiva a little bit, but mostly in Brooklyn. I've been married 27 years. My wife's from Crown Heights. Okay, a real Chabad family. And how many children do you have? I have three children. Three children. Tell me a little bit about your hobbies. I know that you're very into music. You're a musician. Tell me a little bit about that. I've always been a musician. You ask me about hobbies. Music is not my hobby. Music oh, it's not? Because you write about it so often. And you. it sounds, when I read it, it's your best friend. It's my best friend in the sense that I'm passionate about music. My daughter was passionate about music. But it's my job. Can you call your job your hobby? Yeah. It's a gift to have a hobby that's your job, no? I, I define a hobby as something that if you were given a million dollars and said, okay, you don't need to make any income anymore, what would you like to do? Uh, that's what I define as a hobby, and music would not be it. Oh, okay. Music will not be it. But you're a very good musician. I'm a musician. This is what I do. This is what you do. And what, what we're going to lead into the conversation is Yocheved, your daughter, sure. that passed away about eight weeks ago. December 22nd, 2020. Right. It was the end of 2020. Yeah, it was like the, the community was shattered from the story. And it was ending a very long, draining year with Corona. And then we heard about your daughter. I'm reliving the experience as I'm talking now. Like my fingers are numb. My fingers are numb. And I want you to share a little bit about your daughter before we get to the story. Your daughter, her name was Yocheved, is her name. I would like to say yeah, is her name. That's why I said I have three children. Yes, absolutely. Her name is Yocheved. 
She passed away the end of December. Tell me a little bit about Yocheved. I know she was a diamond in your heart and in your eyes, and you had a very special relationship. Tell me about her when she was born, started growing up, a little bit about her personality. So first of all, let me say that I'm sure if you ask any father about their kid, you're going to hear the best stuff. No father's going to say, ah, my kid was a loser. But it may be best to ask others about her. But I'll just tell you from my perspective. So Yocheved was born as a preemie. She was seven weeks early. And Baruch Hashem, she's, she did well in, in hospital and so on. She has a brother 10 months older than her. Should have been about 12 months older than her. She grew up in Crown Heights. She went to the Chabad schools in Crown Heights. She was a very excellent student academically. She always pushed herself to do well. She was a tremendous friend. She always looked to those uh, girls who, had, who others had not befriended and she would befriend them. So she did well in the local school. Towards, I would say, in the middle of seventh grade or even middle of eighth grade, it became clear to us that that her continuing in Chabad schools would not be would not be possible. She was having some, I wouldn't say doubts about Emunah, about religion, but more so she wanted to be a little bit more modern than the school would allow. And so it was obvious to us that she needed something else. And because she was very academically motivated, we needed a school that would cater to those needs. We also, at the same time, made sure to look for a school that, although it was not Chabad, we did not want a Chabad school. But what we did want was a school that was not anti-Chabad. Mm. So that was very important to us. And, and school, a Jewish school? You, it was important to have a Jewish school? Jewish from school. That's not Chabad. More modern than the typical Chabad school. Okay. But that at its leadership is not anti-Chabad. The reality is that there are plenty of schools where are anti-Chabad. They won't tell you that right off the bat, but if you dig deeper, you'll find that they are. And we found a wonderful school called uh, Midrash Shal Havet, which unfortunately had to close during the COVID year. Midrash Shal Havet is in the, five, in the uh, Valley Street, New York. It was in Valley Street, New York. Northwood Mayor, I think it is. And uh, it's the sister school of Rambam, mm-hmm. headed by Rabbi Zev Mary Friedman. And I can tell you, if you speak to the teachers and the faculty over there, when we walked in there, they'd never seen a Chabad family walk into the school and apply mm-hmm. to be here. It was something completely new to them. So she applied to, to go to the school and she was accepted. And high school, yeah. So all through elementary, she, she stuck through it with all the struggles and not fit. The struggles came later, and as we know now, her eating disorder struggles also presented in, in, in eighth grade as well, so it coincided. So those struggles with the struggles of being a little, wanting to be a little more modern, as a result of that perhaps, I don't even know, to be honest. But what was clear is that her remaining in a strictly Chabad school with the strictures that that school had, by the way, there are other Chabad schools that were not as strict, but the school was quite strict, would not be possible, which is why uh, we felt it was better for her to be in a in a school which was more accepting of where she was at the time. Midrash Shalhevet turned out to be the perfect school, and she did fabulously over there. And mm-hmm. I have, I'll always have gratitude for what they did for her, Robert Friedman, Mrs. Eisenman, so on, principal. Uh, she ended up being valedictorian. It's a small school. She was valedictorian, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just fast forward. And if you want me to go back, I can do so. Before we speak about that, we mentioned music, so let me talk to you about music. And my philosophy is that even though I expose myself to all kinds of music, but my philosophy has always been that my kids go to various schools, and if the rules in the school is that you can't listen to a kind of you know, the kind of music that is considered non-Jewish, then that's the rule. And at elementary school, that was the case. She did not listen to anything that was not Jewish, even though I listen to a lot of non-Jewish, and I still do. Perhaps because it's my job, because perhaps because it's my some will say my weakness or my passion. But I listen to everything. I do not allow her to listen to music. That was not Jewish, simply because it was it would run in contradiction to the values that the school that she went to were trying to instill in her. But when it became clear that she was going to go to modern, uh, more modern school, I took her out on the day of her, on an eighth grade graduation. We went out for dinner in Manhattan, and I handed her a hard drive, and I said, "You have it. 
this is your music education. Go for wow. it. And this was all the music of my youth and of my passion. Thousands of songs on MP3s and a hard drive. Of course, today that would be not necessary. We've got Spotify and YouTube music and all that. But she took to it like a fish in water and she really, her musical journey began and it went very rapidly, I would say. And she, she absorbed everything I had shown her. She searched for music that I'd not shown her and she would show me music that I became to appreciate because of her. And because of that, her musical sensitivity was ran very deep. And as, as I wrote on some of my posts on Facebook, she would listen to music that other kids in her class wouldn't listen to. Ella Fitzgerald, music of the 40s, old soul and new music and modern yeah. music. She listened to everything. And I always impressed upon her that there's good music and bad music. So it doesn't matter if it's from the 20s or from the 90s right. or 2010. Right. Music is music. Can I just ask you a question? Do you, did she ever voice disappointment that you can listen to non-Jewish music and she can't? Did she say, this is not fair? Is it a hypocritical? Did you ever hear that? Oh, she was so obedient. She never wanted to cause you pain. So she just followed the rules. So let's talk about that, that word, because throughout her struggles, she was an obedient person. There was not a rebellious bone in her body. Did we have that conversation that she was angry at me for not letting her listen to that music? I can't recall. And if we had that conversation, the explanation that, look, you're in a school that doesn't allow it would have been enough for her. And then mm -hmm. we would have just left it right then and there. And I would have told her, look, if you want to, you can go to a different school. It's okay. You know, like my kids, uh, for example, my boys went to uh, a ditch school to go watch the Super Bowl. They went to Shiva where they would study at night. I said, I'm okay. Just go talk to your Russia Shiva. Go talk to your principal. If he says you can go watch the Super Bowl, I'm okay with it. So the point is following the rules of the school. That's the yeah. point. She did very well in high school. She took advanced placement courses of college in which she scored perfectly on. Everyone loved her. She made some very close friendships. People loved her. Teachers loved her. During Shiva, the teachers came over, principals came over, her friends from school came over and just had only the best things to say about her. Let's talk about her senior year in high school. In her senior year in high school, she was hospitalized for, eating, for an eating disorder. Was that the first time? I believe. It's funny because you're not the first person to ask me this. I think this was the first time she was actually hospitalized. It doesn't mean this was the first time she was seen by a doctor for her disorder, but it was the first time she was hospitalized. And the reason that she was hospitalized is because it became clear to us that this was a very serious problem. It also became known to us, which we had not known until then. Until senior year, you didn't know anything? No, 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 no. no. We knew already in eighth grade that she had an eating disorder. And we, okay. we, tried, we tried to address it. But I have, I have to say that looking back, an eating disorder is most, if, if someone doesn't live through it, no one should. I think it's the most mis misunderstood mental disorder there is. And I'm guilty of it. I think eating disorder, okay, go to a nutritionist. They'll tell you how to eat and you'll be fine. But it runs much deeper than that. It's, you know, it's often sourced in self-image, body dysmorphia, depression, and so on. She was never quite able to kick it. She wanted to. She was very motivated to kick it. She was hospitalized. And one of the reasons she was hospitalized is that it all came crashing down when we learned that she was self-harming. And she was self-harming for years. And she kept it from us. And she was hospitalized in an eating disorder clinic in a mental uh, institution, psychiatric mental institution. No, it was not by force. You have to understand, she was, young, she was uh, younger than 18. The state could have, mm -hmm. but she knew she needed help. She didn't have to be forced to do anything. And it was never a struggle to get her to get uh, treatment. She was released uh, from hospital after about two weeks in an eating disorder unit into a step-down program called Renfrew. I'm mentioning all of this to tell you that, that in her senior year in high school, she missed about two and a half months of school because of it. And I said to Rabbi Friedman afterwards, I said to him, Rabbi Friedman, I know you wanted to make her a uh, valedictorian. It's okay if you don't. She missed a lot of school. And they were just so amazing. They made arrangements for her to take her examinations at her own pace. And they had to be valedictorian. And valedictorian she was. What a lesson of seeing a human being. 
and accepting them with all with everything else but seeing the value i think leaders and ed- educators need to hear this amplify this because this is what we're missing and what they did was unbelievable i thought so they didn't have to and very unheard of perhaps yeah perhaps i don't know what i don't know if any other stories where they say okay you can't do it anymore you got to leave school and there's shame and a lot of stigma and a lot of maybe she's not ready and maybe it's not going to be an image of our school and maybe it's not going to be justice to her and to the family and to the community there's a lot of that judgment that comes and they beautify and i'm not saying they it's society i'm part of the society i was part of the stigma it's a cultural thing that we were brought up with but it has to change okay so i think we're conflating two topics mm-hmm. right the fact that There may be a stigma about mental health and the fact that uh, Midrash that shall have it made accommodations for it to be successful and wanted it to be valedictorian. Because I think, first of all, let's talk about the fact that at that point she had not, she was not public about her struggle. Not at all. Her, her principals knew. But not her classmates, no friends. Not to any great extent, no. But you knew the degree of her struggle. When did you start really understanding the degree? In her senior year in high school, we started the journey of understanding which I've not completed. Right. Continue that much. So, when did she start revealing or she, or you found out without her revealing and then you approached her? What did that look like? No, what what happened was is that I don't know when it was, but after after high school she wanted to go straight to college, she accepted into McCauley's Honors College, which is a honors program in Brooklyn, in the CUNY system. If you get accepted, it's free tuition, it's a prestigious program and so on. I convinced her she worked so hard in high school, I convinced her take a year off, chill, get a job, take it easy. It might have been a good decision. It may not have been a good decision because she was, she thrived on working hard academically. Mm-hmm. But she took a year off. She took it easy. She had a couple of odd jobs here and there. And then she went a year later to Macaulay, where she eventually graduated from Macamlaudi with a 4.0 GPA. At some point during her college years, my wife comes down to my office and says, have you seen Yocheva's Instagram lately? And I said, no. Why? And she said to me, I think you better check it out. And I checked it out. And what had happened was that Yocheva decided one day, for reasons that are still unclear to me, but for reasons that I'm really proud of her, she told her entire story to the world without coming to you first well, that's okay she wasn't no 100% but like she was maybe she wanted you to find out with everybody else everything she wrote about we knew but, but that she's going public we, about it was shocking you know, if someone would ask me how's your daughter i wouldn't uh, say much because i want to respect her privacy her privacy but then one day she came out of it right. she came out of it why she came out of it we had discussions about it by that point she had learned a lot she had a degree in psychology and She wanted to help other people. She never professed to be a, a licensed therapist at all, but she really did help a lot of people get into therapy and have a lot of discussions. You can still go on her Instagram and, and see her discussions about mental health. They're very insightful. There's a social media app called Telonym, T-E-L-L-O-N-Y-M. She wrote a lot on Telonym about her mental health struggles, and she took those highlights and she placed it on her Instagram page. So at that point, at that point she was talking a lot about her eating disorder and about depression and so on. Oh, gosh. You know what? We have to go back to her Instagram and check it, but I would say, I don't know, 21. I have to go back okay. to that. Maybe 21. Early 20s. It doesn't matter. 20, early 20. Early okay. 20s. Okay. I don't, think, I don't think earlier than that. And so she came out of it. It was beautiful. And then we, once she came out of it, we, were, we came out of it in the sense that anybody who asked any questions, we were totally cool about it and totally cool to discuss it. Unfortunately, we did not know the point, the depth of the, the problem. Depth. We understood she had depression. We understood that she had eating disorder. And so she had anxiety. We looked for a therapist. We looked for a psychiatrist. We were unsuccessful. It was hard to afford one. We found, we didn't find. There was no real serious attempt. 
But then came November of 2019. Wait, can I stop you for a second? Because sure. there's a gap in my mind here. And I'm sure my listeners are asking the same question. When she came out of the hospital after those that period of time for her, when you figured out that she's really ha- struggling with her eating disorder, was did the hospital just discharge her and not make sure to follow up and make sure she has some proper medication, psychiatry, therapy? There was nothing? It just, okay, you're free to go and just start swimming again? So this is the way it works in, uh, in America. There are actually laws about this. First of all, it wasn't a suicide attempt. The, the, the rules for suicide attempts are more, are more strict. But even if you're in hospital, if one is in hospital for an eating disorder or some other kind of depression, and they decide to release you, which means that they figure you're doing okay enough to be released, you will need some support. They'll do all, their, all they can to put you in what's called a step-down program. These programs are called PHP, IOP, Partial Hospitalization Program. IOP stands for, I forget, and I'm not even sure which one comes first. I think IOP mm-hmm. and then PHP. So they, they do follow up. That's the way they follow up. They make sure that you're at other kinds of programs. And that's exactly what happened. She went from, from the hospital in Westchester to Renfrew, Manhattan. Renfrew, Manhattan was okay. It didn't, it didn't end well. And she left Renfrew. And then she seemed to be doing better. And then things just moved along at a, an autopilot. The way it works with her later suicide attempts, that, that gets a lot more serious in terms mm-hmm. of step-down programs. COVID complicated matters. So if you want, we can go to, the, to November 2019 and see if there are any questions about prior to that. Okay, fine. So she was in, She was trying to hold her own ground to figure things out. There was nothing major triggering that you should be alarmed to put her back into a hospital. She was just rolling with the punches. Yeah. You use the word trigger. This is an illness that the word trigger is a very important word because it's always triggers. Being at a Shabbos table with a lot of food is a trigger. A lot of people could be a trigger. I'm sorry, the first part of your question was, you had mentioned... If there was, if she just went through from the hospital and just if she had medication or a plan or there was no plan. Oh, okay, so medication. So let's talk about medication. And it's interesting now that I've become more educated, I'm proud of my, the decision that I made back then, even though she ended up being a medication. When she was admitted to, to Westchester Eating Disorder Unit, she was seen by a psychiatrist. Within half an hour of being seen by a psychiatrist, she was diagnosed and prescribed three or four different medications. I wish people see my face. Oh, my God. To which I said, I don't think so. No. And the reason I said I don't think so, because I felt then, and I now, I, I now know, with that book, I'm I, now, I now know that America is addicted to medications, and yeah. I think ultimately it's not the answer. We, don't, we can talk about that. Right. Okay. So I said to the psychiatrist, look, she's under 18. I don't want it to be a medication. No therapy, no problem. And they said, yeah, it's your choice. It's your choice. It's your child to be on or not be on a medication. And then she was not a medication. Okay. Fast forward during her college years, I wanted her to see a psychiatrist, actually, at that point, because I thought she was really struggling. And I thought that the role of medication would be to make her mind open enough that she can consider therapy and handle therapy. I never thought the medication would cure her. And I still don't think the medication will kill anyone, actually. I want to make a point here because there are a lot of listeners that are on medication. We're not against medication. And my listeners know that. I am a huge advocate to get medication if you need to but don't think that it's going to solve your problem. And I always say getting on medication is like going through brain surgery. You just don't go to somebody's office and say, okay, can you go into my brain now and just fix my brain with a local brain surgeon? You're going to do the research and make sure you go to the top brain surgeon because what they're going to do there is going to affect the rest of your life. And I also am a huge advocate of the fact that medication can stabilize you so you can take action and do the work that's needed. 
You, I, I often say so many people need medication for life and God bless medication, but majority can get on medication in order to get off of it, but they need to get on it in order to be strong enough to deal with what they're going through in order to get off of it. And that was my case. That was my case. But I'm a huge advocate of knowing that it's just a Band-Aid or connecting strings that are broken, but it's not going to fix the problem. And I'll let you speak. Yeah. So I actually agree with every word you say. The problem is that America hasn't learned this lesson. Yes. And big pharma is making a lot of money. Yeah, and every second kid's on medications from a very young age. Yeah. Yeah. And for what? You right. know. So she was not a medication. And I tried to get a, I tried to convince her to go to a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. someone that actually I had seen from her own anxiety and which I continue to be on very low dose medication for. It took about a year of convincing. Mm -hmm. Eventually she did go, she did go see the psychiatrist, the same one that I had seen. And he put her on, on medication and it seemed to help. It seemed to help, especially helping her sleep. She went on birthright. It helped her be able to sleep at night and so on. And then came November of 2019. There was her first suicide attempt. She landed up first at Cornell, Manhattan, where she was physically stabilized. She had tried to swallow a, a bottle of Tylenol. She was alone in her bedroom. And of course, the attempt was unsuccessful. And she woke up and she told my wife, this is what happened. And my wife comes to me and said, we've got a problem over here. You, our daughter just made an attempt on her life. Of course, Stella came right away, took it to Manhattan, she was stabilized. From there, she went to, to Westchester, where she was for, for a couple of weeks. She was, at this point, not in the eating disorder unit. She was in just a regular psychiatric unit. Funny enough, they put her in the orthodox unit. They have an orthodox unit in Westchester, which was funny because she'd rather be around people who are not. Right. She wasn't, not that she wasn't orthodox, but she's like. She fit, she wasn't anti, but she felt belonging, not with them. Yeah, with other kinds of people, other religions are close. One of her closest friends is a wonderful Catholic young woman from Staten Island. Mm -hmm. Just all, all backgrounds. But she was there. She, it was more of a comedy than anything else because uh, it was like, uh, how can I say, the ward was Hamish. From there, she stepped down to a Mount Sinai, I think it's called IOP. Okay. And uh, now, even during this point, I'll admit to you, even, this, even at that point, my feeling was that the eating disorder was the more important nut to crack than the depression. The depression was a byproduct of the eating disorder. I can tell you now as I stand here today that I was wrong. So I fully admit that, okay? Because it's a hard thing to swallow as a parent. Yeah, now that I know what I know, I think I was wrong about that. Not that it would have changed much, but I think I was wrong about that. So mm -hmm. in our final meetings with, with the uh, social worker, Amanda Sinai was a wonderful social worker, Bechavid agreed. At this point, we were getting a lot of family support and people coming through droves of financial support and logistical support. And we knew now that any kind of therapy we needed we would be helped financially and otherwise and wouldn't be a problem. So the point is, which where do we go now? So I wanted, to, I wanted her to have a, a therapist, the best therapist who specializes in eating disorder. I also wanted her to have a nutritionist. There are nutritionists that specializes that specialize in eating disorders. And my doctor, my family doctor told us, you, you can go to our regular nutritionist in our of office, course. but what you really need is somebody right. specialized in eating disorder. And he gave us a name. Okay. Okay? He gave us a name of someone to go to. She refused. It's very interesting. She, ref she, she accepted that she will go to therapy. She refused to consider going to any kind of nutritional counseling for eating disorder. The, reading, I the, the reason I suspect is because an eating disorder is something that, is something that gives them control, right? Yeah. So if you go to, if you're going to get uh, nutritional support for it and they tell you, you can't do this, but you got to do that, mm -hmm. they lose control. And, and she didn't want to get any, I'm putting this quotation marks because it's another audio. She didn't want to get any fatter, mm -hmm. but she was a very low weight to begin with. Very thin. But she, I'm using the word fat because 
eating disorder patients consider themselves fat at within 88 pounds. So we had a, we had a, a lot of arguments about this. We had meetings with myself, my wife, and my daughter and the social worker. And I said, look, I'm not getting your therapy unless you agree to go to a nutritionist. And she refused. So the social worker convinced me. She said, you know what? Why don't you let her go for therapy? Three, four sessions, get her comfortable with that. And the therapist will ease her into getting a nutritional counseling. And I agreed to that. Okay. I agreed to that. Why was she following your path if she was adult already? Because she knew she couldn't do it alone? I think two reasons. A, because she needed our, our help. Financially and physically and emotionally. Not so much financially, because financially was there. It was more like logistically. She, okay. knew, she knew that she need, and she knew that I would go to the ends of the earth to help her. Okay. And she wanted to be on the same page as us. Now, she's not a rebellious person at all. So mm-hmm. we were all in it together. Mm-hmm. She knew that we were helping us. Okay. I know there are young women that say, "Okay, mom and dad, we're, I'm out of here. Leave me alone. I'll take care of myself." Right. We know plenty. I know plenty of those young ladies. She was not that. Okay. We were part and parcel of the same issue, same process, and she wanted us to be part of it. So. She started therapy with a wonderful therapist who uh, specializes in disorder. And she explained to us, therapist, look, this is going to take a long time for A, for Yechava to trust her and B, to really come out of herself and to dig deep and so on. And always at the back of my mind, I'm like, uh, eating disorder, eating disorder. I think one of the reasons that I wanted her eating disorder to be addressed is because, again, if your mind is not, and the psychiatrist actually told us, if your mind is not not given nutrition, how do you have the wherewithal to even think about and it's been written about that psychiatric medication is not even effective for to a malnourished mind. Mm. So there's that there's that point. At any rate, what was supposed to be three or four sessions ended up being about three or four months. And I left it, I let it go because she was happy with the therapist. I let it go. And then one day an act of divine providence happened. And the therapist writes to us, sends us an email and says to us, I think Yechavid would really benefit from yoga. And there's a particular yoga instructor starting a, a course in about a week. And she, when she told us the name of the yoga instructor, I said, oh my God, that's the same nutrition, the nutritionist who the doctor told us originally to go see, a yoga instructor. So I thought to myself, wow, what else? This is, you know, fortuitous. This is great. And I told you, Kevin, who she was and so on. So what ended up happening was that she went to yoga and she formed this connection with this yoga instruction instructor who happened to be this nutritionist as well. And because of that, she agreed to start nutritional counseling, which was great. What became, can I just backtrack about something that I feel is really, really important? Because I think you have a lot of Jewish listeners. So one of the things that was very important to my wife and I is that we didn't put religion ahead of cure. Now, we come from a Chabad family, and Chabad families, as most Hasidic families, we have our modes of dress. The women don't wear pants and so on. Right before her first uh, suicide attempt, uh, Yechever and I went to the Halloween parade in Greenwich Village. This is really like, I think, a week and a half before her attempt. And at this point, she's an adult already. She's a... Uh, 22 maybe, I don't know how old she was at the time, 23. And I noticed that she was wearing pants under a skirt. I I was thinking to myself, she's wearing pants. Let her wear pants. Oh God, she's suffering as it is, you know. Okay, so I'm Chabad, so what? She'll be wearing pants. I discussed it to my wife and we agreed to speak to people that we trust, my brother or my brother-in-law, Rabbanim and so on. And everyone said, of course, why not? This will do well for her self-esteem and why the heck not? And I was going to tell her, it. I was going to advise her to do so. In the interim, she had this suicide attempt. And in a many days that we spent together in hospital, I told her, remember that, that night we went out and you were wearing pants? I think from now on, you should, you should change your wardrobe. You should be wearing pants. So actually, it's not something she rebelled against. It's not something she came to us with. It's something that we encouraged her to do. And she said to us, really? You know, I said, yeah, I think you'll feel comfortable that way. And not only that, we live in Crown Heights. I'll walk down pr- proudly with you on Kingston Avenue. If anybody gives you any problems, I'll be there to defend you. And uh-huh. you should do that. And that's exactly what happened. She came back to Crown Heights after her hospitalization. She bought a new wardrobe. We would walk down Crown Heights and we got only support from friends and family. So nothing, 
There was no derision whatsoever. There was no criticism whatsoever. The reason I mention this story is because fast forward to her seeing her nutritional counselor, her nutritionist called us up about a mu- after about a month and a half and told us it's not working. Now you're talking about someone who's an expert in eating disorders and this is what, she worked for a company, that's all they did, helping mm-hmm. young, lady, young women with eating disorders on a nutritional level. Yeah. She told us it's not working and she needs a high level of care. High level of care means residential. What did she see that was not working? She was not able to maintain her weight. Oh, so she was losing weight, not eating. Or not able to gain the weight in accordance with the program. They were meeting the goals that recovery looks at. Exactly. Okay. I can tell you now that everything is in secret. The patient is very secretive and what they're going to want to keep from their therapist, from their counselor, from their psychiatrist, they will. If they dance their own tune, it's yeah. very difficult. It's almost like living a double life. So she said to us, look, I think she needs a higher level of care. I'm not dropping the case. I will be there for you, but I think she needs to go to residential. So then we started looking for residential facilities that would meet her needs. So of course, my first my first thought was, oh, it's residential. I got to find a place that has kosher, right? That's from people or something. And I was having a conversation with an old yeshiva friend of mine. I'm going to mention his name because he was very helpful to us. During this process, his name is Rabbi Benny Zippel, who's a Chabad Shliach in Utah. And Utah is a state where, for some reason, which I don't even understand, is has many residential facilities, yeah. all kinds of mental health challenges. It's the wilderness there. It's the it's finding yourself through the wilderness. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but they have a lot of facilities. So he's very involved. So when I was having this discussion with him, he's getting advice. He said to me, Avram, are you mad? He said, uh, why are you thinking of kashras? Thinking about, think about cure. Find the best place. But it's hard to switch the mindset. When we grow up our whole life, that's the core value. And non-negotiables, like why exactly. would we not think like that? I said, really? And he was the shliach. And I said, really? Mm-hmm. He said to me, yeah, talk to a rabbi. I mean, you'll, you know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is clear as day. So we did. And very quickly, I, my mind shifted and my, my attitude shifted. And I realized that I don't need to only look at kosher programs, which there are one or two in the United States, but I should be looking at the best one. We should start a uh, hashtag cure first, religion second, maybe cure first. Well, this is in general a problem with families, with kids that are struggling. Are you not keeping Shabbos? Well, you get out of my house. You're not, you're not wearing yarmulke. We don't accept you because you're going to influence the kids. There's a lot of these kinds of problems. And uh, right. Avi Fishoff is doing a lot of great work in this area. Right. He's convincing families and bringing families and children together. Yeah. We never had that problem because it was never, never a problem for us. And even through this, you know, we never put religion ahead of it. So the program we found was a program called Center for Change in Utah, Orem, Utah. And it was an amazing program. I have nothing but good to say about them in the sense that they were able to refeed her. That's the term, re, being refed, which has to be done very carefully because to make a, make a comparison, and actually they, they made this comparison for me. So I'm just making the comparison as well. Similar to Holocaust survivors, if you put them in front of this sumptuous meal, you'd, you'd kill them. Okay. Can't handle it. So, feed a eating disorder patient is is similar. You have to be careful how it's done. One has to be careful how it's done. She was there for about two months, and she was refed, and she did attain her weight goals there. Was she proud of herself, or was she afraid of what she, she was? She wrote about it. She was proud of herself. Unfortunately, as we know now, the depressive component didn't catch up. And it's not to say that they didn't know about that because these facilities know that it goes hand in hand and they addressed it. And there was some suicide ideation happening over there, which is why they didn't put it to a, what's called a PHP, like an apartment which you live on our own. And when she expressed for her last two weeks stay over there, when she expressed her suicide ideation, they decided to keep her in residential till she was released. They spoke with us about a about what is called a whole list of conditions to be met. And she had to actually to them in order to be released and go home and so on. One of those conditions were were maintaining weight, weights and so on. There was an acceptable weight, 
more than acceptable weight if it goes beyond below a certain weight it was considered no good and so on and things were okay things were okay this is last year this, this is last year she came home september yeah this happened during covid oh okay okay so it's recently very recently yeah, this, this happened during covid and uh, covid also made it more difficult because she had to stop seeing her therapist uh, in person she saw her on zoom it also stopped seeing she couldn't see her nutritional counselor at all personally i'm not sure if it affected i'm sure it did i'm sure it made it you know not as easy so she came back of course she had a covid test before she went there but she came back and she wasn't home for very long and then there was a second suicide attempt right when she came back like a few weeks later a few weeks later yeah were you shocked it's interesting the first time i was shocked the second time i was angry wow because she didn't share with you no not because she didn't share with me my first and my first initial reaction the first time was oh i felt terrible that she had to go through this the second time, I, I immediately I remember my wife walking to my bedroom, showed me this empty bottle of Tylenol, which was a huge one that she had swallowed, and I was immediately just amazingly angry. I was angry at, not at her. I was angry because we had just invested a year of highest level of care between therapists, psychiatrists, nutritional counselors, residential facilities. I had diverted my energies, destroyed my business. Yeah. I've my energies to spend you know, all the time I can yeah. with spending on this. Unfortunately, not giving the attention my other sons deserved. Right. You know, they're also my children. And then the day she did this, I was like, I was just so angry. Like, what happened? How, how could this have not, you know... Angry at the situation. Like, we did all this and nothing... Nothing worked, yeah. So again, we went through the process again, back in hospital, back, in, back at Cornell, again to Westchester. Did you ever ask her, like, why uh, did you... Before you swallow the bottle of pills, is there a reason why it didn't come to us? Was there ever a conversation about her suicide attempts and what goes on in her mind beforehand? There were, there were conversations before and after, and she kept those conversations very superficial. Yeah, I'm okay now. Or I was feeling depressed and I had a moment of weakness. and I had a, But we know now that that's not the case. We know now this is something that was years and years of, of planning. This is a very long-term, clear goal of hers to do. And nothing could have stopped her. We know this from private writings, from emails she had sent us. And it was a, it was almost like a con. I don't want to put her down in any way because she was, I know she was ill, but she was very focused on achieving that goal. So second suicide attempt, back to Westchester. Now the second suicide attempt is considered much more serious than the first suicide attempt, at least from the hospital standpoint. Funnily enough, for some reason, the second she, she, uh, she got to hospital, this is in Cornell, Manhattan, she was fine emotionally. She was like in a good mood. This is very different than the first, the first suicide. That she was in a very good mood, and she said to me, "Dad, I'm ready to go home." I said, "First of all, <laughs> your, liver, your liver function is who knows if you're going to live. So just we've got to get that stabilized, and you're not going. Oh, it doesn't work that mm-hmm. way." She was in a very good mood. After two or three days, Baruch Hashem, she got stabilized, and then she got shipped off to to Westchester. You asked me before about involuntary and voluntary. She was an adult, and she could have been involuntarily admitted or voluntarily admitted. The laws would have been different. She was voluntarily admitted as an adult. To Westchester, and now the uh, stakes are much higher. Okay, this is your second attempt. Now what? Every day in hospital, she was the most well-behaved young lady in the in the unit. She was happy. She was at peace. She wanted to just go home. They wanted her to go to residential from 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 Westchester. She didn't want it. We didn't want it. In hindsight, maybe it would have been the best idea. We were just tired. We were tired. What a good word. What a good word. Tired. We don't talk about this. That parents and family members and supporters get tired. Yeah. We were just tired. We just wanted to do it. I said, what? Can we, can't you just come home? I'll spend a little time with us. Right. And she has to go to residential two weeks later. So be it. But the lawyers, although at least their protocol is that they're not going to release her until another program, another step-down program will accept her. 
COVID complicated that. And the fact that it was a second suicide attempt also complicated that. So a couple of programs did not accept her. She was accepted for a program at OHEL. And because she was accepted there, the hospital released her. So at this point, we're like, okay, we're guarding you 24 hours a day. Okay. And so this time, I'm also helping her finish her applications to grad school. She wanted to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And at first, she would apply to city schools. And I said to her, your credentials are great. Just why don't you apply to Ivy League schools? What do you got to lose? And she did. She applied to Columbia. We found out after her passing that she got accepted to a PhD program at Columbia with a scholarship. And during this time, my wife slept in her bedroom. We gave her medication. We kept her medication. She was not allowed access to medication. We have a cousin that ran a program at JLI, which is a, which is a well-known educational arm of Chabad. She volunteered at JLI daily. My wife or my son would walk her to JLI, which is basically around the corner, where she would spend a couple of hours and we would pick her up. So we figured, okay, besides that, we would guard her 24 hours a day. And then we pick her up and uh, that's it. We, we thought, you know, we had it covered. We thought we had it covered. Was she okay with this a babysitting, following me tactic? She was okay with it. She always asked for us, what has to be done to release her, release from, her this. from this thing? She wasn't angry at us for us, but she knew that she knew why we, should, we were doing it. When yeah. She knew why it was necessary. And we discussed it when the goals were met, when these therapists tell us, okay, now we can move on. And in fact, we told her that was our goal. We don't want to, we don't want to guard you. She's an adult. We don't, we just mm-hmm. care for you. And uh, as I just told, discussing with somebody yesterday. So again, my whole year I was diverted, diverted, diverted. My energies were diverted. My business mm-hmm. was being just completely, my mind was somewhere else. At, at this point, we were in a rhythm. She was doing well at home. She was actually in a great mood. She was participating socially in a way that she had never done before. We thought we were getting to where we needed to go. And finally, like one morning, I remember sitting down. This was actually on the morning of December 22nd. My mind was clear and I was, got to the computer and I was starting to work on a project that I write music and I was feeling so good about myself. After about over a year, and I was wow. fighting with peace. This arrangement for, some, for one of my clients and I was feeling good, doing well. And I said, okay, let me go upstairs and get a, just a, a snack. Late morning and I went upstairs. As I'm about to hit the kitchen, I get a phone call. Is this a Vermigrari? Yes, this is a sergeant. It was a cop. Your heart drops. No, actually at first not. Because we get so many prank calls, I said, I don't know what's the cup. You have to grow your daughter. And I'm like, not trusting at first. It took 30 seconds for me to realize this is a serious phone call. And he, like, he made it. And I shouted out to my wife, who was exercising at the time. I said, where's your habit? And I screamed, where's your habit? And she uh, comes down and she says, you have it at JLI. Is she not? I said, I don't know. What happened? I said, I walked to the JLI. And this is what happened. She had walked to the jail, to JLI. And uh, she had, after about 10 minutes, she told a coworker, I'm just going home for 10 minutes, I'll be back. I need to pick something up. I'll be back in about 10 minutes. And of course, that's not what, what happened. She got in a subway, went to Manhattan, and uh, successfully ended her life that way. It was the, the cops right away, right away. She was found. Right away? Yeah, right away. Were there witnesses over there? It was midday, right? It was late morning. Late morning. Late morning. There were witnesses. Tell you the truth. I mean, like the detective told me, by the way, I wanted to just give a shout out to the New York City Police Department, who last year, they, they got a lot of flack, but I can tell you that they treated us and the whole situation with the utmost respect and utmost care. And they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. So just to back up a little bit, we we said, okay, we're coming to Manhattan. Where where should we go? So you still at this point don't know anything. They're like... They they, have it fell. Oh, no. That's what that... This was the cop is telling telling us. You have it fell. And your heart fell too. I knew. knew, You knew. knew. Your gut. I knew my gut. That if, if, if someone's telling you you have it fell... Didn't fall. Did you say, is she alive? Did you have any questions? Nothing. Where can we come? Ended up being like a low-level officer. Where do you want us to go? Oh, my God. I called my brother-in-law over, and uh, I actually told my son, call my brother-in-law's office. 
gave, tell him to come right over. He drove us to Manhattan. And I'm on the phone with the cop. Go to this location where it happened. Thank God, actually. Five minutes before we got there, he told us, don't come to the location. Go to the 10th precinct where we did. And they had us, they took us right up to the, I don't know what the top level, top rank officer over there, not detective, someone above detective. So I don't know what it is, captain perhaps. And he sat us down and he said, uh, yeah, this is what happened. And unfortunately, your, do- your daughter didn't make it. I'm speechless. The detective later told us, said, look, this video of the entire event, which you're allowed to see, but I don't want you to see. And I said, you're right. In this video, we, we piece it together because it's security cameras. We piece it together from what you got out of the subway. To, we, you know what happened. But especially don't see it. And he was very compassionate. And so I had a long talk with him over the phone. So that's it. That's the whole story. That's the beginning of the story. I think we need six episodes. First of all, so many topics that came up here. Thank you for sharing and thank you for being so open. And thank you for being so open so early on. Most people take them a year or two to grieve, to process in order to be able to even share with the world. But it's unbelievable the courage you have. It's unbelievable. And the respect that you have for Yocheved and that admiration that you have through all the struggles. And as you said, you were tired. You gave her the youth. You you showed up full. Everybody showed up full. The whole team, the family, everybody. And it's painful to know, as you said, the anger. Like, what? After all this? Really? In 30, 30 seconds, you just excuse yourself. And we had everything. We thought we had everything so protected. And you found the loophole. Yeah, she found the loophole. This is exactly right. The pain found the loophole. The right. pain, the struggling, the frustration. The, and I think we're going to take it to, on, on the next episode, I want to take it to a few aspects. First of all, what you learned after because the research starts after, right? Unfortunately, the research Unfortunately. starts after. I spoke to many people that their kids died by suicide. And the research of, wait, how does the brain work? And what happened? And how did we not see it? Why didn't anybody tell us? And why weren't we informed? And there was so many of the research that comes up after. And the conversation really should ha- start before, before they're in the hospital and all that. So I want to I want to do that one episode. Another episode I think is very important on the family members that are getting neglected. What I'm hearing a lot of people that are calling me. And I actually wanted to do a Facebook live on this because I was the pain was unbearable. They're saying we're giving all of our resources. Let's say we have 6 kids. We're giving this one child more than 12 kids get together. Everybody else is neglected. Our businesses, our homes, our children Everybody else gets neglected. Now, to compare it to cancer patients, there's so many organizations that pick up the pieces of the kids at home, then the financial resources, the support. There's a lot more support for family members that are going through it with the mental illness community are alone on this. I reached out. There's nothing out there. There's nothing from family members, from family members, for kids that are drowning because their parents were in home because they went to Utah and they went to Florida and they went to California and they're in the hospital and they flew 15 times in the last... During while they're suffering, after suicide. No, before. I'm talking before three, four years or five years of running to therapists, running to programs, running to psychiatrists, in and out of the hospital, then another program. And the kids at home are like, wait, where's mommy and daddy? And here, take a a bowl of cereal, survive. Mommy and daddy are not here. And we have bigger crises on us. And the fa- and some families fall apart because of this. Yeah, we can talk about that. But I'll just say that for the last year and a half, 
we have to make a differentiation between families that have very small kids, young kids, and, and families like my, like my own, that at the time of my daughter's first suicide attempt, my youngest son was 18 or 17. So he wasn't young. Older, not very, very young. Although, I must say, you know, 10 years prior to that, where even though the attention is not as much as the last year, but they're still diverted. Plenty. And also talk about businesses that fall apart and you can't show up to work. What if you're on a salary and you took off three times to travel with them to, to a place or psych ward or, right? You're shaking your head, but is, am I correct? So that's a whole episode that I want to do with you. I want to go on and speak about the conversations that have to happen a little bit early on in communities and schools and education to just educate parents, leaders, mentors just to pick up on these things that it's not so late that we're doing double shifts to fix things that we couldn't pick up. And maybe there are no answers. Maybe. And another conversation I want to have with you is on the parent, how not to hold that guilt of the thousand million questions that you have, that you tried so hard. And am I a failure as a parent? What did I do wrong? Did I not give her the love? Did I not give her acceptance? Did I not show up properly? What could I have done better? I have a lot to say about that. And what I'm getting from parents over and over, where did I go wrong? What did I do? And there's so much pain for that parent. There's such loneliness because they feel like failures. And what they need to know that they're heroes. No one knows it. No one knows really how to deal with it. because each And there's no uh, book that says, okay, this is how you have to show up as a parent 100% because every case is so different. I just want to say, I know you have to end soon. I just wanted to say that I have a lot of regrets and I was not the perfect parent and I made plenty of missteps. At the same time, I don't feel like a failure. Powerful words. I don't. Powerful words. We, we can expand on that another time as to why that is. Yeah, powerful words. And I think it's empowering for parents that are struggling through it now, that are running around with our kids that are self-harming or with depression, not going to school, not being active, eating disorders, that they're, they, they feel so hopeless and so alone, and but they still want to help. And to hold that pain for their child when they see that their child is suffering is hell in itself. So to add that part of I'm not a good parent when you're doing triple shifts, not helpful. And they really should get awards for trying and keep on trying when there's not so many answers. Someone, a therapist said to me, when I said to him, I'm a terrible parent, he said to me, Remy, can you build me a rocket ship? And I said, no, I can't, because I don't know how. I said, the same thing with parenting. You, you, you figure it out as you go along, and sometimes you're going to make mistakes. You, you don't know how to be a Who taught you how to be a parent? Exactly. So the first episode is about Yocheved, right. really. And we really didn't grasp. I want, In the next episode, I want to hear a little bit more about her sensitivity. And because I think it's important for people to understand that people like are special souls, really sensitive souls. They're not like, oh, I'm going to get the world and I'm going to create pain now. No, that's the probably what kept them alive so long with their pain every single day was to prevent pain in the world. Yeah, she's helping others. She help others. Yeah. And also by her living when she didn't want to live was living for others that they shouldn't get through the pain of the loss of her. Yeah, and there's special humans that unfortunately don't have that ability to control their mass pain. Before I end, I'm just going to say that I interviewed a lady that her son died by suicide. And she said that there's this like a brain aneurysm kind of thing that goes on for 30 seconds to a minute and there's no control. And that's when it happens. And those 30 seconds to a minute, and people are lucky if they can be 
caught in that minute. That's an interesting point. But in, in our case, as I described, she it was very intense. It was like a one and a half hour thing. She left Brooklyn, went to Manhattan. This is what I'm going to do. So I guess, you know, what you're saying is true for some people. I'm not so sure that was the case in our situation. What she did explain was a lot of times it's the attempt and then something stops them. So it could be she had a lot of those beforehand, but then at the moment, there was no one there to stop. She didn't, there was no one that could help her. And she says those 30 seconds to a minute is so important. And many times there are suicide attempts that don't happen and no one ever knows about it because something interfered. There was an inter interaction, a phone call, a slight saying, okay, maybe I'll wait a minute. And then, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> that is, I have so many questions and I feel bad that we have to go, but we're going to pick it up. You're helping humans. I don't even know if we're, help we're saving people from death by suicide. But what I do know, we're giving comfort for people that don't understand it for parents that are struggling with kids that are attempting suicide and self-harm and mental illness, we're giving them comfort by just being with them in this time of lack of clarity. Sure. And it's a very lonely, dark place to be. So That's I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us. And we're going to pick it up again if you could give us um, like 10 more hours of your time. <laughs> okay. I know, no, I think it's important. We'll build it out. Now that we know this story, we can bring some wisdom and hope and inspiration and some comfort to those that maybe their kids died by suicide or attempted suicide or are, are talking about it or don't want to even get there. I want to address those parents of kids who are five years old. We'll get there another time. Yes, we're going to do that. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Athena. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. In Mental Health Together is Better, you being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So so don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.